Okay, uh, welcome everyone to the uh, May uh, Variant Perception client call. Um, you know, we've been doing this kind of format for the last uh, two or three months, and I think we've got some very good feedback where, you know, instead of repeating some of the content, um, it's more an opportunity for uh, Tian and myself and, and Walter as well to discuss just some of the nuances around our views and be proactive in answering some key client questions. Um, so I think, you know, with that, I'll just run through um, effectively how uh, we're seeing the world right now, how the roadmap has changed relative to last month, and then we can uh, dive into some uh, key questions. Obviously, mindful of uh, uh, some of the very crazy price action, we'll try and keep this one um, a bit more brief and just highlight the key indicators and charts to watch over the, over the next month or so. Um, so really, just to, to kick it off, I think, you know, with inflation driving um, all the price action right now, um, based on our indicators, um, you know, we've looked at all of the, uh, the critical components within CPI. And, um, you know, the message is, is still pretty similar in that, you know, the critical components, things like um, housing, um, basically shelter CPI, um, our models are still suggesting that the, uh, the upside is very limited. Um, you know, things like wage inflation, again, evidence from the labor market suggests that, um, you know, things like quit rates and so forth, there are peaking levels, things like NFIB, the small business surveys, um, you know, they're pointing to kind of peak wage um, exhaustion in a way where, um, and, and things like used car prices as well, like the Mannheim used car price index, I think has a two to three month lead on the uh, CPI component. Um, you know, all of these things that have been driving uh, US headline CPI higher are showing some evidence of, of exhaustion. It's just a question of waiting for that to actually play out in the CPI data. Um, now, of course, I think, you know, we need to clarify our roadmap where, uh, you know, effectively we were saying that the, the March prints uh, would be the peak and that, that has been the case so far. But I think it's a question now of assessing the magnitude of the rollover where, you know, of course, the April prints showed that, you know, it's a price higher. Um, and, you know, to that extent, it, I think it does effectively delay the, the roadmaps for buying into bonds and, and equities that we had highlighted before, um, where we're still in this very choppy environment. And, you know, we don't have enough evidence to, um, to effectively allow the Fed reaction function to err dovishly. Um, so again, it's, it's one of these things where, um, you know, we have, uh, we have these roadmaps as a way to plot out various scenarios, effectively assign implicit probabilities to them. Um, and, you know, right now we're just not seeing enough evidence to, to suggest, at least from the last month, uh, to suggest deviating from the, that kind of base case. So, you know, I think just reviewing um, some of the cyclical uh, indicators that we have, um, you know, top left chart, uh, uh, core country leading indicators for the US, Eurozone, China. Um, you know, as expected, we're seeing rollovers in the US and in Eurozone. Um, you know, we've been uh, watching Chinese data very, very closely. Um, you know, of course, uh, with zero COVID, and we did have a client question about this that we'll dive into a bit into, into more depth a bit later. But uh, just for the time being, I think, you know, kind of mechanically looking at some of the inputs that drive our China uh, leading indicator, um, things like um, external trade conditions, seeing some weakness there, South Korean trade data um, helps us to kind of proxy for global trade conditions. 
Um, and also mechanically, the, uh, the yuan depreciation um, should um, drive a, an upturn in the China LEI, all things equal. Um, however, you know, in terms of actually seeing that play out in the in the real economy, economy, you know, when we're looking at things like um, you know the lockdowns in these manufacturing hubs and so forth, there's just there's that kind of clash between the the kind of the geopolitical element versus kind of the stimulus waiting in the wings, and it's just a case for us to kind of marry those two things together. And right now, it's telling us that you know, just wait for evidence of a, a more meaningful upturn in our Chinese leading indicator. And again, we're not, we're not quite there yet. Um, and so I'd say that the, the biggest marginal change really over the last month has been um, our liquidity indicators that have uh, gotten quite a bit worse. Um, so excess liquidity is, um, is negative. Um, and again, it's consistent with pretty choppy equity returns, um, you know, very consistent with the mid-cycle slowdown. And um, our BCFI index has uh, just continued to tank. And, um, and again, we can, uh, in our leading indicator watch, we showed that, um, you know, we effectively have a lead on BCFI in our forward BCFI index, which is effectively a measure of um, how many central banks, I think G20 central banks are priced to hike in the next six months. Um, and I think with Denmark and Norway being priced for, for hikes in that time horizon, um, it tells us that there's, there's no, marginal relief for liquidity at present. Um, and I would just um, I would just like to highlight that you know the the you know the, the core liquidity indicators that we look at, um, excess liquidity and BCFI, um, these do an absolutely tremendous job of leading the business cycle. And uh, this was um, uh, effectively what we explored in our asset allocation cookbook uh, that we released last week, where we're you know effectively just testing just where we are in the cycle and understanding what are the key inputs to drive um, our read of the cycle. And consistently, we found that, you know, BCFI and excess liquidity are absolutely critical for understanding where we are. Um, you know, intuitively, it tells me, you know, with excess liquidity, it gives me a sense of, you know, how much, you know, in real dollar terms, how much is left after, uh, the, uh, you know, effectively after money is being used up in the real economy, how much is left to support risk assets. And then BCFI gives me a sense of directionally, you know, which way is uh, are these liquidity conditions um, moving the kind of global cost of capital. And I think, you know, it's it's no surprise, um, you know, in terms of the, the tech crash and now the crypto crash, it's um, not particularly surprising the price action, um, you know, if we were only to rely on excess liquidity and BCFI, um, it's consistent with, uh, with the reads there. Um, and I will, uh, you know, I will just say that effectively, you know, with, with, uh, with liquidity indicators where they are, with growth indicators where they are, um, these are consistent with a, a mid-cycle slowdown, but, you know, we're getting to the point where, you know, a lot of these indicators are point to, uh, you know, effectively approaching late cycle quite rapidly. Um, the saving grace for now is that our recession models are, uh, are muted. So this is the bottom left chart on slide three. Um, and just, um, just to highlight that we will, we will be releasing a um, understanding recessions report uh, very shortly, um, just to help clients navigate through some of the, uh, well, for, for us anyway, you know, we, we're consumers of research ourselves, um, just to divorce ourselves a little bit from um, some, of the, uh, some of the predictions being made about recession calls and, and uh, a lot of the noise around that. Um, you know, for us, we view recessions very much as regime shifts, um, and effectively, these are processes that happen 
uh, very quickly. Um, and so for us, you know, we don't really think it's, you know, we don't pay much credence to forecasts that go out, you know, 12 plus months because, you know, there, you know there's, there's always going to be a recession on the horizon. It's just, um, you know, for investors and clients, we want to highlight, you know, when is the critical point to actually shift your portfolio risk. And usually that window is three to four months before the start of a recession. Um, so our signals are designed to, um, to work with this time horizon and should avoid the worst drawdowns in this, um, in this period. Um, and, you know, right now, the only component that's been triggered is the, um, is the oil price spike. Um, and so really, I think, you know, the way our recession model differs is that, you know, effectively, once we see stress in one area of the economy or the market, um, we need to see confirmation of uh, stress appearing in other areas. And really, that's the way a recession works, where, you know, for instance, with credit spreads, when they start to widen from, uh, from low levels, um, you know, effectively, we need to see evidence that banks are tightening lending standards, for instance, in, into this period where then you know, effectively companies are struggling to refinance, uh, you know, at the times when they need it the most. And then that leads to job losses and um, shutdowns and so forth. And that's really the way a recession um, operates. It's through these negative feedback loops between uh, soft uh, survey and market data and hard economic data. Um, so I think, um, I think with that in mind, you know, I think, you know, going back to some of our, uh, some of our core themes, um, whilst the recession signal is still muted, um, and the fact that the US consumer is uh, still pretty resilient, and, you know, I think this is where our framework is starting to evolve slightly, where, you know, historically, we've always viewed things from the top down, um, you know, looking at things like our US growth leading indicators, retail sales leading indicators, they are still at relatively high levels. Um, but also now we're starting to integrate more of the bottom up where we're looking at, um, you know, effectively looking at some of the bank surveys and some of the transcript comments where, um, you know, again, Brian Moynihan, I think he's been a VP favorite over the last year or so um, in terms of getting, giving us a read and, uh, on the um, uh, banking side. Um, you know, effectively, he's, he was asked a question about um, whether the lower income households are, um, are starting to struggle and starting to draw down deposits. Um, and he said it was actually the opposite where, um, you know, actually they're in a very, you know, very resilient position. They built up such an excess in aggregate of, um, of checking deposits that, um, you know, right now they're, they're sitting on relatively healthy levels. So, you know, to that extent, you know, marrying the top down and the bottom up, we're still in a position where we don't, we see, you know, incredibly low risk of an imminent U.S. recession. Um, so to that extent, we are still invested in some of these structural equity stories. Um, you know, I just wanted to highlight that we wrote some uh, very, very good reports, I think, on, um, on our sector views and um, looking at some top ideas by asset class. Um, and so just to very briefly cover um, some of those, I mean, um, again, energy seems to be very much a story of incredibly supply-constrained industry still. Um, you know, effectively, we're not seeing signs of a capex response. We're not seeing signs of demand destruction as yet. So, to that extent, we're still we're still invested in that area. Um, I think something that we can, I think, <laughs> take a nice victory lap on is uh, tech hardware versus software. Where, you know, again, it's governed by the capital cycle that told us, you know, within tech there is still relative value. Um, and I think now we're kind of at that extreme where we've seen we've seen hardware outperform very very strongly versus software. Um, and so to that extent, we'd be taking off that short leg of software now. 
um, but still respecting the capital cycle, still understanding that, you know, effectively, you know, the semi-industry, there are incredible um, uh, capacity restraints, you know, in terms of building out the capacity needed to support structural uh, demand shifts higher, we're, we're not at that point yet. And so to that extent, you know, we're thinking of ways to still get exposure in this space, like semi-cap equipment um, that are still in that, that sweet spot. Um, and, you know, I think we've, uh, we've got a, um, a client question on housing that we'll cover a bit later, but um, again, I think housing is a, a very, very uh, contentious um, point in our, uh, in our views right now where, you know, home builder stocks are very much priced for recession. And, you know, I think to that extent, the, the market has kind of skipped ahead and priced in recession in these, um, you know, some of these very cyclical names. And it's almost skipped ahead from, you know, the, you know, enjoying the kind of the volume growth phase um, and then kind of skipping ahead and uh, going straight for, um, for uh, you know, marking these companies down for a recession. And I think to that extent, we are um, still seeing a lot of structurally positive signs and that the supply of the industry is still incredibly constrained. We are still seeing investors liquidate. Um, and these are, these are positive signs, I think, to lean into. Um, so I'll leave it at that. And um, I think, Tian, it would be helpful just to um, perhaps balance, you know, some of the cyclical and structural views I was talking about with, um, you know, some of the tactical charts. Um, and, you know, particularly given, you know, we saw our VIX arms uh, signal go off last week, um, just trying to balance some of the contrarian buy signals versus, um, you know, effectively quite weak tactical context charts with, um, you know, some of the, uh, some of the main indices. Um, yeah, so um, so thanks for the uh, the summary, Aaron. So I think the way to frame is, um, you know, I've had some one or two clients who have often ask me like a really interesting framing question. So, you know, on a scale of one to 10, right? 10 being most bullish, one being, you know, max bearish. They're often like, where are you? You know, how are you synthesizing indicators? And I would say a lot of times I've given an answer somewhere in, in the kind of three, three range for a lot of, for, you know, a lot of the past few months and, on, you know, on interactions where, I'm just describing as a one is if we think a recession is imminent, then we're like, you know, this is all, you know, fully get, get, get defensive, right? Get, get full bearish. But, you know, outside the recession, it's probably as bearish as we can be in terms of the cyclical um, outlook. Cause obviously, you know, we show right liquidity things are very bad and they've been bad for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, however, I would say now we, you know, we're probably getting to a point where instead of being like a three, you can probably tick it up to like a, a four maybe, right? Like there's no, um, you know, when there's some tactical things, maybe it, you know you 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 do want to respect that there's potential for short squeeze, right? When there's in, you know panic and these kind of things, but overall, you know I, I don't think we want to overstate these too much, right? And, and overstate too much that the fact, okay, even though there isn't a recession, you want to get too too bored up, right? You know, in the past, you know, with the Fed put without recession, the past ten years, we've still seen some fairly big um, kind of market drawdowns, and so when I think back to over the history of VP, at least my time here, well, when we've done things well and what's been the root cause of some of our mistakes, I think it's often we've let a lot of specific uh, fundamental narratives um, get, get to attach to them at the expense of respecting the overall tools, right? As you mentioned, you know, access security, BCFI, leading the case, these, you know, these have worked, you know, China leading the case, right? They've worked for a long time. They still seem to work because I think they capture something very fundamental about how economies and liquidity operate. And so whilst these things are going against you, you, you never want to be too, 
you, you, you always have to bear that in mind, right? That's always the kind of context in which then to be like, okay, you know, we still think structurally we're very bullish on home builders, right? Structurally, we still like Brazil, right? But, the, the, you know, we, we, we can't lose sight of that, that context of where liquidity and growth are. And I, I think that's, that's kind of my main takeaway, at least from observing a lot of our tools, you know, through the past few kind of up and downs. Um, so, so that's probably overall uh, how we think about it, right? You know, if you on a scale of like ten, you maybe go up to three, uh, go from like a three to a four, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, um, I, guess, I guess it's one of these yeah. things where you know, absence absence of a negative is not necessarily a, a positive in in light of the fact that you know our reception model is muted and prices have adjusted lower. It's not necessarily you know what we're seeing on the cyclical sides and the tactical sides suggests that. You know, this is not the all-in conviction moment. It's not the time to to be a hero and blindly buy dips. I mean, I mean, I, it would be. I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear just you know how how our bond roadmap is changing because you know as I as I mentioned, um, you know, effectively our, our U.S. inflation indicators have um, you know effectively ticked up last month on the back of energy prices, but at the same time we're seeing. Um, you know, evidence from you know, things like shelter and so forth um, that show that there is, are still sticky pressures. Um, you know, we were previously writing that, you know, effectively we had the, the Fed May meeting, we needed the CPI print peak. Um, you know, we've had those things. But, you know, for me personally, I think it's getting into that mindset of, of, of adding duration. But again, we're not quite there yet. So, I don't know if you want to explain, you know, what what we'd like to see to actually, you know, action that in terms of um, yeah. duration in portfolios. Um, yeah, so I, I think well, both, both equity and the bond roadmap are, are linked, right? Ultimately, it's about the Fed and then headline CPI doing what we think it's supposed to do, which is, you know, obviously now we've seen the the April print, the May print should be another another dip, right? Ideally, lower than lower than April, and then by by that point it'll be, you know, early to mid-June, right? So, you know, if the market is seeing two consecutive prints, right, where you can see that year on year it's rolling over, obviously because of base effects and, and you know, nothing else necessarily blowing up, the month-on-month data hopefully is also showing it's, it's going to prove our leading indicators right on, on areas like, you know, used car prices, um, um, ha- housing and so forth, right? So it's, it seems like that's a more natural point for the, the peak inflation act for a bit more comfort around the peak inflation narrative. But again, I don't think anyone's thinking this is going to be immediately back to two, right? This is still inflation uh, yeah. high plateau. Yeah. So, you know, there's still going to be very little reason for the Fed to, to, to back away in terms of hikes and gaining policy credibility. The Fed's in a huge rush to get to neutral mm-hmm. and get above still, right? That hasn't changed. So there's no Fed put still. Um, I think, so I think, it, I think this is quite interesting, right? Because, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, they've got a political challenge and, you know, I, it, to me, it's, it is quite striking that they keep banging on about the 1994 analogy, right, where they do achieve that soft landing. But, you know, contrastingly, we've seen, uh, you know, um, RBA, BOE, you know, these guys are saying that there is downside that, you know, there are recession risks um, to, uh, to tightening quickly. Um, and so, you know, if I was to take a purely objective view and just only looked at, you know, our growth leading indicators for the states and compare that with, you know, what we see in the UK, in Europe, in Australia, um, you know, I, I can kind of understand that stance, but at the same time, I need to, you know, you know, we need to account for the fact that the initial conditions are very different, right? We've got a, an inflation problem right now um, that, you know, effectively means that the off-ramp for the Fed is... Um, 
a lot harder than it was uh, back in '94. I mean, well, you... it's no, no. It's I think it's it's a lot more clear cut than that, though, right? There's absolutely no reason for the Fed to back off because, mm. as we've shown, the hard economic data is still fine, right? All the recession stuff is soft data market. Like, look at the labor market, right? We've regained all the jobs lost in the pandemic. Look at the Fed's own measures, right? Core PCE from when they adopted the 2012 target, right? That's that's in terms of com compounded annual rates is all up to two percent. Um, as, you know, initial claims, okay, it's still, you know, bounce, you know, taking around at low levels, right? That, I, I don't see any reason why the Fed should back off, right? Like, you know, if they want to tighten financial conditions in terms of all the other bits of the mandate, it's still, it's still fine. So, mm -hmm. um, and obviously we, we have our Fed um, easing trigger as well. You can see it's a pretty high level. So we're quite far away from when the Fed's supposed to shift anyway, even, even if you just look at it in a quantifiable way versus the past 10 years. So I still think for equities, it's still, um, you know, obviously we've been using this phrase, right? Window vulnerability, the back kind of rate rise, you know, that, that's kind of all the various headlines we've been having. I still think that's still uh, very much the case. Um, but on the fixed income side and bonds in particular, what's interesting is we've been in this yield crash. Obviously we've been updating some of our tactical LPPL trading signals, right? And a lot of those are lined up to kind of um, early June as well. Mm -hmm. So I think roadmap wise, you're getting to a point where potentially you get to that point early June you see the two lower CPI prints, the, the crash dynamics play out according to the, um, according to the models. Yeah. And then from there, there might be some tactical opportunity to, to kind of um, squeeze the trade a little bit, right? Because presumably also at that point, the, the narrative will still be that the Fed is still holding on and equities, you know, there's still going to be equity pain and so forth, right? So it feels like increasingly that that long duration trade in terms of to the end of the year, right? Let's just say, you know, Obviously, further out structurally, we know we're, we're moving to a regime of high inflation. So this isn't necessarily saying, yeah, bonds are a great buy for the next five years. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think let's just say to the end of 2022, is there opportunity to cyclically get long duration? Obviously, uh, you know, you know, we think there is, but what are the things that are needed? I think one is we see the two consecutive CPI prints down. We get to June with the LPPL, um, hopefully confirming it, and then. And then from there, I think, we'll, you know, equities probably still will be very volatile and struggling. And then, um, you know, even though our recession model hasn't gone off, it feels like you have, then there's a kind of an asymmetric way to get to, to kind of, um, for, for the long duration to play out, right? Because either we do go into recession, like our models could be wrong or things could change very quickly because obviously if you look at the, the kind of general market crash, right? We're, we're somewhere into kind of liquidation gets more liquidation behavior it could really start to affect sentiment you know if china doesn't ease up europe's in, we know europe's basically going to be in recession right and china's already in an industrial recession and they don't look like easing so it's not out of the question that things could shift very quickly in the us in which case if you're long duration at least you know that tail risk you, you're protected against at the same time you're getting a reasonable kind of trading level so um the only thing that i think that would has a risk, but again, I think the, the, the May Fed does, did help a little bit was I think we can be a bit more comfortable with the Fed's balancing intentions. Um, you know, they don't seem that keen on going down the kind of really aggressively selling down um, kind of holdings, right? It's going to just let things mature. They have a cap. Um, so that hopefully means that the, that, you know, the term premium behavior is not, is not, is not going to be too dramatic right? in, in terms of the, the, the repricing higher. So um, so I think that that's the marginal change that gives us slightly more comfort. So I, I, as of right now, I would be thinking probably yeah, some, you know, June seems like an interesting timeline. Um, but for, for equities, for us to turn positive, again, I'm just reminded of the previous times when, you know, 
where we've not followed our tools as much right historically during during the history of VP. Again, I think we need to stick to our our tools and let that guide us a bit more rather than just get too excited that oh you know everyone looks super bearish now we've got to get long yeah. or there's a short squeeze coming so you know in my mind we want to see uh, some china reflation so china the indicator needs to go up right now it's still basically playing out an l shape it's not getting worse but it's not getting any better um again liquidity wise we want to see some signs of stabilization in um, liquidity right which obviously there's zero signs of right now um so you know, from that, that point of view, I think it's going to be very hard to get super bullish on equities. Um, but I still, but, you know, g- given that, though, there's still things to own, right? Like, you know, like, as you mentioned, energy, some of the kind of commodity link stuff, like, you know, if we get these dips, then ultimately, I think our mindset will be that those structural stories, even U.S. home builders, right? Those structural stories are probably good enough that let's say, let's say we go for the next few months um, and the recession model doesn't trigger and then, and then China zero COVID, they do end it. They start doing some reflation. Um, somehow the Europe situation kind of resolves itself a little bit more. Like you know, there's a you know, somehow the West gives Putin a, a step down, right? Then you could then you know it's possible to imagine a scenario where yeah, the, the picture looks a little bit different, right? Europe isn't as bad as people think. China zero COVID is over. They've reaffirmed the five and a half percent target, so they may ease a bit more. Um, and then in the US, the hard data is okay, in which case your your soft data stress, right? Your your market stress. Uh, probably needs to re- reprice a little bit like that that's possible right and then obviously in that scenario a lot of these sectors seem to identify you know we think they're going to do pretty well coming back mm-hmm. um so that that's roughly i think what i'm thinking in, in, in my um in my head right, in, right now in terms of equities and, uh, and bonds as a roadmap yeah let's uh let's quickly um dive into china this was um uh, from a from a client just curious about you know how, how effectively we're waiting um, you know, our Chinese leading data and some of the inputs there versus what they're doing with zero COVID and, and the lockdowns and so forth. I mean, I'll be, you know, from, from the data, it seems as though, you know, we're, we're in this kind of stabilization period, right? You know, as I say, with, you know, there is a lot of stimulus kind of waiting in the wings, but, uh, you know, we kind of, we need some evidence that the lockdowns are, are easing for that to actually uh, proliferate through the economy and then we start to see the classic signs of like inventory rebuilds and consumption hoarding and so forth um you know i you know when i look at some of the high frequency data like we've just got the bottom bottom middle chart there just like a high frequency gauge um which uh you know is is not as bad as i was expecting and you know things like uh total social financing data and you know various credit data and so forth um, they actually look pretty good and, you know, relative to 2021, they're actually, you know, keeping up with that run rate. So, you know, I, I'm, to me anyway, it's a little bit confusing when we're seeing, you know, at least from the models and the data, we're not seeing too many negative signs, but obviously what we're uh, reading about, you know, feet on the ground in China is, uh, is a lot more bearish. So I don't know how you're thinking about marrying those two elements together. Well, I, I think the short answer is zero COVID supremacy, right? That's the phrase I've been using in, in the LIW and the, the previous reports, right? Zero COVID supremacy by now is obvious. She reaffirmed that again, um, despite all the, all the talk. So whilst that remains the case, there's no scope for any of these indicators we have to be realized, right? The potential won't be realized. Um, um, you know, how is China going to get to herd, herd immunity quickly? You know, their own mRNA vaccine progress hasn't been great. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about doing three doses of Sinovac, but obviously a lot of old people in China haven't had it. So I think those are, um, you know, those are necessary 
conditions for a lot of the, for all the other stuff that China has talked about in terms of, you know, easing the economy, um, you know, supporting the economy, all, all these kind of things for that to be realized, right? In my mind, it's just a hierarchy issue. So, um, it, you know, I have, I have no idea how quickly it happens, but, you know, it could be as early as second half of the year, right? We just don't know. But in my mind also, you, you probably don't need to be front running this, right? Chinese assets and Chinese link stuff are so cheap that, you know, even if you buy it up 30%, say they have good news and the thing rallies 30% a day, even if you like chase that in, you're still getting a quite reasonable valuations in my mind. So you might as well just wait, get the genuine confirmation, get the genuine market reaction and like the big turn and then chase it from there, right? That, that's kind of more how, how um, I, I, I would be framing it right now um, on, on China. Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense. I think you know we we didn't necessarily fall into the trap of front running the the models, um, you know, through last year where we're seeing you know liquidation upon liquidation of Chinese tech uh, companies. Um, I think it's you know you you know it's how it's put us in a good position where you know we can effectively just wait for the data to play out. You know, as you say, just kind of waiting for the realization of of leading data, um, and. Uh, you know, effectively focusing on other areas that are more interesting. Um, moving on to uh, gold and gold miners, um, you know, we've, um, you know, I think we turned um, pretty, you know, we were pretty bullish on gold, um, you know, I think for, for quite a bit of last year. And then, um, you know, at the start of this year, we're starting to see evidence that, uh, you know, a lot of the tactical headwinds were growing, um, you know, effectively the structural story will always be there in that, you know, we are in that kind of higher inflationary regime. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, you know, the top right chart there, just in terms of through the 70s and early 80s, you still saw, you know, 40, 50% drawdowns in gold, um, where, you know, effectively you got to a point where real rates just couldn't get any more negative, right? And then on that run up of uh, you know the interest rate hikes, you um, you know you can you can lose uh, quite a bit of money. And so to that extent, I feel um, you know we're not quite at the position really to, to turn bullish there. Um, you know a lot of the tactical charts remain pretty bearish for gold. Um, but we did have an interesting question of you know effectively given uh, gold miners have uh, have lagged the the metal itself um, and the fact that we know that miners are capital scarce um you know is this a a good time to be buying um you know if we're wrong about gold's um method uh, kind of the metal thesis um you know will gold miners be a really good way to play for that upside and you know i think to i think it's important just to note that with the capital scarcity scores that we do have for, for gold miners i mean yes these guys are you know effectively um effectively being starved of capital and you know with the um, huge boost to free cash flow generation over the last year or so. They have been buying back shares, they have been hiking up dividends, um, but it doesn't necessarily translate into a better kind of supply demand environment, which is really what our capital scarcity scores are all about. Because, you know, with, uh, with other commodities like industrial metals and, uh, and energy, um, I think the key is that, uh, you know, you, you do actually have a cycle, right? Um, you know, effectively gold, stays above ground, it's not necessarily consumed in the same way. So to that extent, I don't think the capital scarcity argument um, carries through as powerfully relative to, to other areas of commodities. Um, yeah, just, just, to, just to clarify, Aaron, I think to clarify the key for, we don't, we probably shouldn't think of gold as a commodity, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, we think it, we should think of it as a currency in the sense that all the other commodity for the cycles 
generally because it will be consumed quite quickly, you have to produce more if there's demand. Whereas obviously for gold, it's not, you know, the consumption goal is so small that it's always going to be there, right? So then it's it's more a gold is going to behave much more as a reflection of investor sentiment um, towards real money as a reflection of uh, real real yields and so forth, right? So it's not a typical capital cycle. So I think we just, just, you know, I think it's important to clarify that. Um, and obviously just to know in terms of trading models, we had a, we basically had a long gold from November last year and we basically took it off um, and, and down and basically took, took, took the, the rating down after the Fed, right? After the Fed in March, we kind of took gold back down to neutral. And I think that that's just where we're going to be, right? It's going to be a while before I think we get genuine clarity on, on having, um, on really turning bullish on gold again, right? It's like um, given access to creating all these other things, again, it's not obvious where the marginal gold buy is going to come from um, right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and then finally, just moving on to um, onto housing. Um, you know, I think uh, you know if we if we cycle back actually to slides uh, slide three, the bottom right chart, our shelter CPI model. Um, you know, I think this is an area where I, I am a bit more concerned about. Uh, model error where you know effectively our model is suggesting that upside surprises are very limited for shelter cpi from here um but i think just given how distorted the collection of of uh rent cpi data is and you know the fact that you know we're seeing um you know a lot of um a lot of things in like miami for instance of rent prices just you know spiraling higher and you know various surveys and so forth it's these aren't necessarily consistent with, you know, the annualized rate of, I think, you know, five, six percent of uh, shelter CPI. So, you know, to that extent, I'm not, I'm, I'm a bit concerned that we're not capturing um, kind of the true inflationary picture there, because, you know, to that extent, inflation, um, you know, inflation will very much bite uh, very hard uh, for consumers, right, where, you, you know, you can't really personal finance your way out of, of high rent. Um, and so then I would expect to see more of these demand destructive behaviors. But again, we're not quite there yet, but I'm just concerned that our model is not quite capturing um, that element. I mean, how would you think about um, shelter right now in the States at least? Um, well, I, I think I probably have high, high conviction in the view, right? Like having dug into it, we know that the, the, the shelter CPI data is gonna be lagged by up to say three to six months from the real conditions on the ground, because just because it takes them so long to survey everyone mm-hmm. and to and they don't survey all the regions. So like to truly get the whole shift, that that there's delay there. And then, you know, as we've shown before as well, in terms of the relationship between realized rents, i.e. what they're going to pick up in the surveys versus asking rents, that gap has been closing because the moratoriums ended a while ago, right? So that that's that distortion comes out. Um, you know, I don't buy. Well, I just think again, historically, you've had periods when you know house prices have grown double digits, and and obviously you can see the chart there, right? And shelter CPI hasn't been hasn't been super high, right? It's always been this range of kind of low low single digit kind of things. So like even if you try and model it, you would need to have a reason why this time is truly different. And obviously we've looked at the reasons why it's different in terms of moratoriums and and, and things like that. So you know I, I still think right now we. We're just making up for the previous overshoot. Obviously, we saw that undershoot, right? At the time, again, you know, our framework explained it very well. Everyone's like, well, you know, there's no housing inflation, so so it's not a problem, right? Housing is the biggest way in the inflation basket. Well, we pointed out at the time, right? You have the moratoriums, you have the delayed collections. It's going to take a while to come through. Yeah. So now that it's actually coming through an overshooting, 
and everyone's getting freaked out about it. Again, I'm like, I'm, I'm more relaxed. Um, you know, the fact that mortgage yields and these things are surging so much is also another sign that, that you know, there's, there's going to be inherent mechanisms to kind of control it a little bit. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, does it mean it's going to go back to super low? Obviously not, right? But just, I think this overshoots a bit, a, a, a bit exaggerated. I mean, we'll have to wait and see, right? If you look at a lot of home builders earnings stuff, they've been surprisingly good in Q1, mm. like really surprisingly good. Like the narrative should have been that, you know, there's huge supply constraints, right? People, you know, struggling to source materials and stuff. So like volume should be getting hit and volumes won't hit that much. And most of that, most of them kept guidance, right? Which is very surprising. So, um, you know, you know, let, let, let's see how, how, um, how, how, how that evolves um, in, in the coming months. But um, yeah, it, it just, it, it's just, um, it's not obvious to me what, why, you know, we have loads of the inputs, right? Captured for, for, the, um, for the market, right? I mean, there's like, I mean, we have 10 different various inputs on US housing, right? Like, and there's it's quite a big breadth of things we're capturing that as well. So certainly the housing market is tight, but it's also not going to be, you know, accelerating kind of from here. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah, let, yeah, let's see. Yeah. Right? Again, I think it's, I think it's the, the, the net effect is effectively, you know, we're, we're effectively in this environment where we've seen kind of the, the peak, um, you know, the peak, growth side of things where you know rental growth has spiked to a level and now we're starting to see that roll over but um again it's just trying to assess the, the magnitude of that rollover and again i think this is where it's helpful to look at um uh, you know on the ground comments you know i think uh you know we looked at um, apartment rents they collect uh rental data across um you know across the states and you know they were saying that you know last summer was crazy and since then we haven't really seen signs that um you know rental inflation is uh is gonna spike up to that level again i mean again you know we're we are getting into a seasonally strong period for renting um but to the extent that you know again it's it's difficult to weight all of these different things together and i think this is where uh you know as you say kind of let the data do the talking um and you know whilst we have seen episodes where you know house prices go you know, double digits, we haven't necessarily seen the follow through into rent CPI. And so, you know, to the extent that we're trying to get a sense of uh, the Fed's reaction function to that, um, if they are just looking at, you know, the headline CPI data, I think I would, I would, I would agree with you in, in that, you know, for the CPI, you know, mechanically how it's collected, then, you know, that the upside surprise is perhaps limited. I'm just thinking more in the sense of, uh, you know, how it, kind of proliferates to the to the real economy and that you know if we do see um you know evidence of banks starting to tighten uh lending standards and mortgage standards and so forth we're not quite there yet again but i'm just thinking that this could happen very quickly right if we start to see one leg crack then um you know i feel that a lot of these things could spiral together and really um you know, we could be looking at quite real recessionary risks in the in the latter half of this year. But you know, for the time being, we're not there yet, right? And I think, you know, it's this awkward period of seeing quite binary outcomes right now, where you know, if we do get a soft landing, if our recession models do stay muted, then um, you know, home builders do offer the, uh, just incredible asymmetry. Um, so I think. Um, uh, you know, we're at the 14 minute mark now. I think any any closing comments from you, Tian, before we end? Uh, no, I, th I think um, I think we covered a lot there. Yeah, yeah. I think I think from from our end, I think um, you know, I think I'm very excited just about some of the um, 
the tactical tools that we're developing. I think it gives us, you know, as, as we mentioned, the LPPL models. I think, it, again, it adds just another um, string to our bow and helping clients to effectively size positions. And, um, you know, certainly with some of the asset allocation work that we're doing, I think it's, uh, it puts us in a really good footing for just translating a lot of the key models, right? I think just, again, distilling everything that we've got in our database into just very tangible expressions of how things are expected to move month on month. Um, so uh, thank you very much, everyone, for, uh, for dialing in today. Um, we'll uh, put up a, a transcript and a recording of the call, um, uh, hopefully uh, by Friday uh, tomorrow. Um, and we'll see you again next month.